All right, Jeremy. Well, first, I just want to say thank you for having me to your house and taking some time to talk. It's uh, great to have you on the show and, uh, and welcome. Thank you. I'm delighted to have a chance to talk with you. Likewise. Um, I always like to start by getting some background on people to learn about how they became who they are now. Um, you know, you have a lot of important positions. You now teach at UT. I've, I've looked at your credentials and your academic history. What got you interested in what you now study and what you now spend a lot of your time dedicated to? It's a great question. In some ways, I've always been interested in history and the relationship between societies and different peoples and cultures. Uh, I'm the product of a very mixed background. My mm. father's an immigrant from India, huh. and my mother is the child of immigrants from Russia. So I'm half Jewish, half Hindu. Huh. And ever since I can remember, I've always been fascinated by, by those histories and by the strange ways in which these histories crossed and created me. <laughs> 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 and and how I could grow up in a society uh, with um, parents from these very difficult backgrounds who who really were working class at best, hmm. and um, get to do what I do now. I mean, yeah. what what a land of opportunity we yeah. have for some people at least. So so that's that's at the root of it. And then uh, I was very fortunate going to public schools in New York City hmm. to have some very good teachers. I had some very bad teachers. I had some very good teachers. And then uh, to to uh, get into Stanford University, where I did my undergraduate degree on a, on a full fellowship. I didn't have any money, hmm. and I was exposed to some history professors, and it was really like seeing that what I had always been interested in was something one could do. Yeah, uh, it opened my eyes not necessarily to new interests, but seeing a future in those interests and hmm. finding work that allowed me to pursue those interests and make public contributions hmm. rather than you know, working in a coal mine or something yeah, else. Yeah. What does, what, what about history do you think spoke to you as a person? What, what fascinated you or interested you about the topic? Two things um, from a very young age. First, uh, the power of individuals. Hmm. I remember reading a lot of historical novels. I used to do those as a kid, not even realizing it was history, you know, novels about the Russian Revolution, novels about the French Revolution, and the the influence that individuals, not always people with big titles, yeah. not always people with the most money or the most guns, but the role that at certain moments and certain circumstances individuals can have, that's always fascinated me. And I remember even as a young child thinking about that. Hmm. And then the other side of that story, the way that circumstances often limit opportunity for mm. people and that interplay between circumstances and individuals, I think that's at the root of everything in our society. As you began to see a potential future for yourself in that field, how did you see yourself fitting into that area of study? Was there a, a specific contribution, specific area of history that you wanted to really study and, and um, be a professor in? What, what was kind of your, your narrative, your internal thinking, and your development as, a, as an academic as you are now? So I started out as a Cold War historian, as a mm. scholar of international relations, nuclear weapons, yeah. foreign policy. I, I came of age really in the 1980s, in the what was in the early 80s, a very scary moment when we thought the world was going to go to nuclear war. Yeah. Uh, 1983, the movie um, The Day After was shown on TV. Mm. It was a story about a nuclear attack on Lawrence, Kansas and yep. what happened to the world. Um, and then we had the end of the Cold War when I was in high school. Mm. And I was fascinated by what the Cold War was about, why it ended, what we could learn from that. So my early work, even as an undergrad at Stanford, my work in graduate school uh, was very much on researching the Cold War. It also made sense yeah. because since it was so recent, other historians hadn't worked on it yet. Yeah. So it was a good way to get in and do some new scholarship that would explain something I was interested in without having to go over the work so many other people had done. What... 
you know, I, I was telling you before we started recording, I, I was just in College Station interviewing the director of the Bush Library. In your estimation, I, I'm imagining this is a part of your scholarship as well. In the early 80s, I mean, my parents, I wasn't yet alive at that time, but my, I think for my dad, he had the impression that this could go on for generations, and within a decade it was over. How do you as a historian think about or diagnose what happened in the Soviet Union that led to its collapse? Big question, I know. Yeah, it's a great question. It's one I've spent a lot of time writing about, researching, and, and lecturing on. And my answer changes as time goes on, <laughs> right? I mean, that's because you see new material. The circumstances we're in change the way we view these issues. I, I'd say three things about mm. this, three, three ways of starting to answer this huge question. Um, first, I think um, the evolution of the Soviet system had reached a point where the system could not sustain itself any longer. Uh, and that had very little to do with the direct policies on a day-to-day -day basis of the United States. It had to do with the failures of communism yep. and, quite frankly, the failures of a system that did not promote innovation and actually discouraged, gave disincentives for people to work. Yep. Uh, so that's one thing. That was a long-term process. It takes a long time for a failing system to actually fail. Yep. Or another way to put it, you can fail for a long time. Right? <laughs> I know entrepreneurs like to say fail fast. It's very good advice. If you're going to fail, fail fast. Yep. Right? The Soviet Union failed slowly. Uh, that process did not make the way it ended inevitable, but it made some kind of ending inevitable. Second, I think you had a new generation of Soviet leaders, a new generation of leaders across Europe, who uh, wanted to try to do things differently. Mm. Uh, Gorbachev, who I think is really the, the hero in many respects, uh, Gorbachev wanted to save the Soviet system, but he also didn't want to use violence in the way that Stalin and others had. He didn't have the stomach for it. He had lived through the consequences of that. Mm. His humanity, quite frankly. I've had the chance to meet Gorbachev a few times. Wow. I mean, his humanity doesn't make him a genius. It doesn't make him clairvoyant, but his humanity, his unwillingness to destroy in, in the pursuit of what he wanted. Mm. I think that was crucially important. And then the third part, and I think it comes after those first two, is where the United States and other countries step in. I, I think the, the most important thing you can say about Ronald Reagan and any of his predecessors is not that they were tough. I mean, some of that was necessary, but more they were willing to reach out and they were willing to believe that change could happen. Mm. And most of Reagan's advisors, including Robert Gates, his um, CIA advisor, yeah. and others told him, no, the Soviet Union won't change. Reagan was willing to believe that they could change. Mm. And, and I think the lesson we need to take away from that is even long-standing systems of horror have the opportunity to reform if we try to encourage that. It doesn't mean we should deny the horrors of what they've done, yeah. but it also means that war is not the answer, that we have to reach out. We have to find a way to help societies reform themselves. Reagan was committed to that, particularly in his second term, mm. and he deserves a lot of credit for that. Yeah. That in I was alive when the Soviet when the Soviet Union collapsed, and I, I think in my lifetime that may have been the most important historic yes. moment that has yes. happened in the last thirty thirty five yes. years. Yes. So you're involved in that, or you're at least interested in that subject matter. Then there's the collapse collapse of the so Soviet Union. As somebody who's interested in history and important ideas, important events, where do you go personally from there in terms of your interests and your your efforts? Well, two things I did as soon as the Soviet Union collapsed. I was just starting as an undergraduate. Right. I, it, it was actually, I was just explaining this to my undergrads the other day. The collapse of the Soviet Union was my senior year in high school. Hmm. And it was such a wonderful time to be graduating high school. Very different from our world today because everything seemed possible. Yeah, This was the moment of liberation. I went off to college thinking we were going to solve every problem. 
And, and we shouldn't forget that. We have the capacity yeah. to solve a lot of problems. So for me, it meant two things immediately. First, I wanted to learn Russian, which I did, and mm -hmm. go to Russia to study to do research because now archives were opening. Now we could interview people. Uh, and I did that in graduate school, which was great. It, it was complicated, but it was yeah. great. And the second thing was just what was in, in your brilliant question, thinking about the role of ideas mm. and how powerful ideas could be, but how different or difficult they are to put into place, right? And really focusing on what was often neglected by scholars, which are the non-material elements of what motivates our behavior. It's, it, it is in a certain way easier to study how money motivates behavior. You know, mm. you, you look at someone's bank account, you look at how they act, but ideas are much more difficult. And, and I think that's really important because so much of what happened after that moment in our world has been driven by ideas. You think about the influence of religion, mm. right? Uh, that's, a, that's, that's of the same piece. It's ideas motivating changes in behavior. Mm. That experience, I have to imagine, going over to Russia at that time in its history must have been fascinating in terms of opening up information that had never previously been available, I imagine, to Western academics. Talk to me about that experience. What did you learn? What, did you, what do you remember? What resonated from that time? Well, I first remember the economic difficulties Russians were going through. I went over the first time and I rented a bedroom from a babushka, from a grandmother. Hmm. And the way it worked in the Soviet Union in, in that time in Russia, you kind of owned an apartment even though you didn't own it. Once the Soviet hmm. system allocated a kvartira, an, an apartment to you, you lived in it the rest of your life. Yeah. You didn't pay any rent. And you've probably seen pictures or, or experienced this yourself where they're in these buildings that are terribly run down, but the apartment's really nice <laughs> because that's all they own. No one owns yeah. the common space. Right. No one yep. takes care of it. And I was renting this um, bedroom from this grandmother. And um, what I paid her for the month of renting the bedroom was more than her pension was worth over two to three years because her pension was in rubles that had collapsed. Yeah. And uh, so I was this student who was richer than the retiree. Yeah. And um, so that was that was one that was one thing. Um, second, uh, it was the Wild West. I mean, all, so many things were were happening there without much law and order. Uh, it was a very dangerous place. It was a very exciting place. Uh, there were newspapers with all kinds of commentary everywhere. Hmm. For the research, what was most interesting to me was sitting in the old headquarters of the Communist Party with the big Lenin yeah. portrait staring at me in the reading room. Yeah. I was sitting where the Soviet leaders used to sit, reading through boxes, literally file boxes of their papers, and noticing, and this was the real insight I had and a number of us who were there at that time, they spoke in private the way they spoke in public. So they really believed that the world looked the way their propaganda said it did. This comes back to my point about ideas. They had been so inculcated with these ideas that they had forgotten that reality was different. Yeah, uh, and that's a real warning. I th I think there's some of that issue in our society too. Mm. You can live in your own propaganda bubble. I remember it's funny you mentioned that. I mean, I, I got I, I got into a very big uh, Stephen Kotkin kick. Oh sure. Last year. Oh and, yeah. And, and uh, he was uh, he's got so many great lectures and interviews online. And I remember that was one of the major points yep. he was stating as well from his research is that it turns out the communists were actually communists. That's right. Uh, to simplify. That's a, a lot that's of exactly right. I mean, his books on Stalin I think make this point that Stalin, who at some level looks so Machiavellian, so manipulative and brilliant at it. Yeah. He really believes this stuff. I mean, he really believes the U.S. and Britain are going to go to war. Yeah. <laughs> because the two capitalist powers, according to Marxist theory, are supposed to go to war with one another. And so, yeah, I think, I think that comes through loud and clear 
uh, in the archives. The other thing I should say is, and and this is one of the difficulties of being a scholar, there aren't many heroes out there. (laughs) You know, even someone like a Gorbachev, when you get into the documents, you realize that he was trying to prevent the worst of things from happening. He had an aversion to killing lots of people, thankfully. Um, But he also looked out for his own. You know, after the Chernobyl explosion in 1986, he moves all the Communist Party officials and moves his family before he tells the public. Mm. And some of that might be the corruption of power inherently. Um, But you do also recognize, you see the best and the worst in human beings and you see them in the same human beings when, when you're doing this research. So you get back, I assume, to the U.S. after your stint in Russia. Talk to me about where where your life goes, where your interests then lie, and and what has brought you to the, your current place in life and in academia. Well, so I, I began a lot of my early work trying to understand the relationship coming out of the experience at the end of the Cold War between what happens in the street and what happens in the halls of power. Yeah. And uh, my dissertation and first book and a number of first articles were on the relationship between protest movements and foreign policy. I actually went back to the 60s and early 70s <laughs> because I think that's, as, as Kotkin and others have said too, I think that's really the beginning of the end of the Cold War when you see a fundamental transformation in so many societies with a new generation <laughs> and how they think about politics. And what's, what's extraordinary is 1968 is a simultaneous moment of protest across all these societies. The U.S., Germany and France, everyone knows that. Russia, too. Hmm. China. Japan. And so I was really looking across societies with Russia as one of the societies. Germany I spent a lot of time in as well, Hmm. trying to understand what changed. Um, And I became very interested in the role of generational change, generational experiences, and very very interested also in the role of communications, so underground newspapers, hmm. uh, new forms of media. How do groups communicate to one another? And then how do those in power respond? Uh, and my early work was on how the period of detente, the 70s and early 80s, was, was actually a response to these problems on the ground as leaders looked to fortify their power, hmm. looked to escape some of the most egregious actions, war in Vietnam and elsewhere, but also looked to hold on to power by trying to, one way or another, isolate themselves from these uh, movements on the ground. Hmm. And I think that tension is still one we see, we see today. So that's, that's where a lot of my research went initially, and that's moved over time. One research project builds on another, right? Yeah, yeah. To understanding, uh, I wrote a book about Henry Kissinger because Kissinger was right in the center of this. And then I wrote a book on nation building because I think that's fundamentally what nation building is, the effort to go into another society and build on the desire citizens have for a new government but still build a government somehow and get things functioning, and then how presidents struggle with this. And the new book I'm writing is is really how democracy uh, in the United States has always been, contrary to how it's taught, I think, always been a struggle over different groups seeking to claim uh, power and seeking to claim that their interests should be represented better than they are represented otherwise. You may have been alluding to this earlier when you were talking about uh, seeing at least some echoes or, or similarities between what you were noticing and reading the communist documents and what is going on in the U.S. today. I want to talk about today, and I want to talk about how history, from your perspective, can inform uh, or better educate, better inform, better help a, uh, a nation that I noticed just in living here over the, the past you know, four to eight years that I feel like is in trouble. Um, and it has reached a level of divisiveness and distrust that I certainly don't remember when I was a kid. Uh, seeing it from both sides. 
just opening up that realm of discussion generally, I would love to get your your sense on maybe to start what you meant when you were talking about earlier uh, some of the propaganda, some of the echo chamber like dialogue that you notice in the Soviet Union happening today. We'll leave that open to you to sort of dissect or analyze however you yeah. think is appropriate. And I think your observations are, are astute, and 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 it's something I, I think a lot about. In fact, it's one of my main areas of both research interest and policy interest today. And I think history is crucial for for this. Um, I, I think our society, like other societies, is is not a society where people naturally talk to people who disagree with them. Yeah. That has to be created. That has to be cultivated. Uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, when he visits in the early 19th yeah. century, he points to the role of these social associations. Yeah. They exist because people have to work together. They don't exist because people naturally gravitate to those who see the world differently. And part of the genius of democracy is getting people with different views to work together while they keep their different views. This is what Madison means by pluralism. And we go through different phases. This is where I think history is important, where the technology and institutionalization of our world can either encourage or discourage people from different areas to come together. And we're in a moment now where at least for the last decade, if not longer, much of our society has discouraged interaction across areas. The most obvious way to look at this, I think, is in terms of our communications technology. Yeah. And I don't just mean social media. I mean the way we electronically communicate now. We can find and sort more easily the people who think the way we think, and we can form what looks like a global diverse group of like-minded thinkers. Uh, I find this, this is the comparison I like to use with my students, you know, when my wife and I in the 1990s traveled overseas to Europe, you know, we would travel, we would backpack, uh, take a URL pass, and we'd stay in a hostel, and you just meet people there. Yeah. You know, then you go out and you drink. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, uh, my students, when they travel, they coordinate with their phones exactly who they're going to meet where, and then they're communicating with other people. And so they're not actually, there's no spontaneity. Yep. They're sorting even when they're traveling. They're sorting even when they're traveling. And so we have to find some ways to unsort. And we will. But we're in a sorting, we're in a sorting moment. Uh, I think that's part of what's, what's happened. The 60s and 70s were a fascinating period because new kinds of groups came together. A new kind of sorting occurred. All of these, this is a whole book that I wrote about this, yeah. all, all of these middle class kids whose parents had served in World War II in the Army, Navy, served in hospitals, wherever else, they got to go to college for the first time. When they went to college, they were around kids they never would have been around before. And they formed student groups. And then they protested the war in Vietnam, and they rode buses to desegregate bus stations, right? Mm -hmm. Today, we've sorted. We need to find ways as leaders of organizations to unsort students uh, that's, and, and young people. That's, that's one element of what's happened in our society. The second is we've developed a winner-take-all mentality um, because uh, it appears as if the pie is not big enough for everyone. Mm. So there's more of a premium on not growing the pie but, but taking what's there. And uh, I think that's how we talk about natural resources too often. It's how we talk about so many things. And we need leadership to discourage that. We know historically that resources grow when you commit yourself to growing resources. Resources remain constrained when you don't invest in building resources, yeah. right? Uh, moments of infrastructure development in the United States have actually been moments of growth and opportunity, moments when we don't invest in our infrastructure or moments when we get into these kinds of um, battles that we're in, that we're in today. Uh, and then I'll make one other uh, historical point that I think is, is really important. Um, you know, I think um, those who are in a group that has traditionally been powerful or groups that have traditionally been powerful, 
that are still doing well but are going to be challenged now by more groups, what Richard Hofstadter called social status anxiety, hmm. downward mobility. Um, they have to give way. That's the engine of history, uh, especially in a capitalist system, is new groups challenging old groups. New money challenges old money. Hmm. New tech challenges old tech. Yeah. And we have to deinstitutionalize the brakes that those at the top always put on limiting competition. This is the dirty secret of how capitalism works if it's not regulated. Those who have made money through innovation will stop all innovation that challenges their status. Uh, and we need to do things that open the door for new challenges. That often means cross-race, cross-gender, uh, across all sorts of areas. Uh, and we're in a moment where we have to make those choices. We will, I think. We've been through this before. It's just particularly ugly right now. Um, and, and so on the one hand, I take optimism knowing we've been through this before, but I also see how difficult it is to get through these moments. And yeah. We're not anywhere near it yet. I'll tell you a quick anecdote. So I grew up in northwestern Pennsylvania, um, historically a very union town, sure. uh, had voted for a Democratic president, I think in every election since Ronald Reagan, which so town, Erie, Pennsylvania. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah I've been there. Yeah, uh, it's a you know it's a Rust Belt city, yep. and it has been bleeding population for thirty years. My dad, after law school, came up there in the mid seventies when I think it was roughly at its population height. And you know, I look at I, you know two thousand sixteen. I think for so many reasons was such a watershed year, and that was. Um, a moment in which I was living in San Francisco, but had was really born and raised in this place that was a crucial victory uh, location for Trump, and it flipped for Trump. Yeah. And I remember just hearing in the national media about people actually caring about Erie, Pennsylvania for the first time and making uh, in the big cities I was tending to spend my time in observations about how these, these cities were deeply racist. Um, that these people were deep, deeply ignorant. I would never deny that there isn't some of that going on there. But on the whole, uh, the, I know that city because I was born and raised there. And the it was the most poignant um, anecdote, I guess, for me personally, of the separation between the cultures that maybe you were alluding to a little bit earlier and that people who were tending to live in New York City, San Francisco, Austin, Texas, had never been to and probably never would go to a place like Erie, Pennsylvania. I, and in a way, I did feel a, like I was in a bit of a unique position to try to hold the center right. conversationally just in meeting people. I think it is human nature for people who find out that they, they have similarities with others to flock together, right? Birds of a feather flock together. And in some ways, I would love to get your thoughts on how... Because I, I think it is healthier for the society for having a degree of intermixture among people that have different backgrounds. You were talking about the college kids that were going after World War II together and uh, worlds were colliding that otherwise wouldn't have historically. How can we, in your judgment, help to break some of the uh, bifurcation, the, the tribalism, the echo chambers that we're noticing all yeah. over the country? Yeah. Well, we know how to do this. We've done it, again, in the past. Yeah. This is where history really uh, helps. One thing we did is through public service in our past. Mm. So one of the great things about the New Deal in a very difficult moment in our society, the Great Depression, is it did some of what you just described. It took people from communities who had never uh, interacted with those in other communities 
and put them together in CCC, Civilian Conservation Corps camps, uh, in the military. Uh, Henry Kissinger, who I wrote a book about, you yep. know, he's a German Jewish immigrant to the United States. His family flees Germany just before Kristallnacht in October 38. He comes to the United States at age 15, doesn't speak any English. In three years, he's in a U.S. Army camp in South Carolina, the only Jew. It's the first time in his life he's been outside of an Orthodox kosher household. Really? He's eating ham for Uncle Sam, literally, for the first time in his life. Surrounded by uh, farm boys from South Carolina, city boys from you know Raleigh, Durham, and mm-hmm. elsewhere, uh, and forced to connect, uh, and it's not always smooth. By the way, yeah. it's not always easy, uh, and I'm not arguing it has to be through the military. It could be through something like a civilian conservation corps. It could be through any kind of organization like that. But you put people together in a location where they're devoted to serving the public for a short period of time, and they learn a lot from one another. And again, that has to be done with intentionality because, as you said so well, birds of a feather flock together. Mm. People look for affinity groups. It's natural. And and we're free. We should be able to do that, right? Yeah. I want to be around people who have similar interests, totally. right? Yeah. Um, but we also have to counteract that. Uh, and these kinds of programs have existed many times in our history. We could say the same thing about the Union Army. I mean, you, you think of all of those uh, politicians and business people who came out of the Civil War, which is this horrible event. But the connections they had made in the Union Army, you think of someone like Harry Truman, his service in World War I. Again, it doesn't have to be in the military. Countries like Germany have shown us mm. you can create a mandatory public service for young people. Let's take 19, 20-year-olds, maybe right before they go to college, give them a year, give them a reasonable wage, let them do something of public interest where they have to work with people who are different from themselves. Mm. Uh, many people a- advocate for this and have for a long time. Stanley McChrystal mm. is an advocate of this. Robert Gates is an advocate of this. Uh, so we could do that. We could invest in that. That's one thing. Uh, another thing we could do is really work on desegregating our schools. Uh, one of the dirty secrets of American society is that we've ended legal segregation, but we still have de facto segregation in our schools, particularly in progressive places like Austin, Hmm. particularly in progressive places like Austin. Now, I'm a believer, especially as a parent of teenagers, I want my kids to go to a good school. I want some choice, but I also want us to do more to make it possible for uh, kids who aren't in certain schools to have access to schools and for kids to be around other kinds of kids other than just their own background when they go to school. Mm. This is really uh, important. It takes an investment of resources and a willingness to, to, to do that. We haven't bust kids in decades. That might not be the solution. But boy, oh boy, we could look for some other uh, solutions for this. And then the third thing I think that, that might even be the, the most I- important way for us to do this is to build public spaces mm. that draw people together. One of the reasons uh, I love the part of Austin we live in is we have some parks. Yeah, My wife was on the city council. That's how she got started in politics, right? Was mm. actually working to raise money for our parks, right? Notice during COVID how important our parks have sure. been. Right. And too much of our spaces, I'm recounting now a whole area of urban history that's a very rich literature that's not really my area of expertise, but that I draw on in my work. I mean, it's shown how we have privatized space to such an extent that our neighborhoods now uh, are not really neighborhoods, they're just extended families Mm -hmm. of people who look like us. Why don't we push it the other way? Why don't we try to create more public spaces, maybe on the European model with a piazza, <laughs> right? And, and, and look, in the world we live in today, if you create um, and allow for free broadband access or easily accessible broadband access, you and I will go sit outside. 
Yeah. You and I just give us a table somewhere and I'll interact with, with people instead of the, the people I meet or the people at the airport who are like me. Yeah. <laughs> why not meet people in, in different settings? So those are just three examples. The, the key point here, I think, historically is it has to be an intention of government policy, mm. not to detract from anyone's freedom, mm. but to create encouraged incentives for individuals to interact with those who are different from themselves. If we don't do that, then the entropic elements, right, the centrifugal elements uh, take the lead. You were mentioning that this happened to Kissinger early in his time as an American where he was going to North Carolina and interacting with people he otherwise never would have interacted with. Right. And I'm curious what happens. I totally agree with you. There is something that happens with people they don't necessarily become long, lifelong best friends with individuals who they would otherwise have not really had anything in common with. But what does happen to people when they have those interactions in your judgment that if, if you agree with this, that sort of takes some of the poison out of the caricature of people who are, for example, from the South, who are Republicans, who are right. Democrats, right. who are this caricature of a person right. in people's minds? I think um, the historian says people develop comfort. Familiarity does breed comfort. Mm. Familiarity doesn't eliminate prejudice. You can interact with people and still be prejudiced, and, and, and you know, that's a deeper psychological issue. But you learn to be comfortable. This is, again, back to Tocqueville. What, what amazed him about Jacksonian America were how you had people who were so different from one another meeting together in uh, saloons yeah. <laughs> and doing business deals. Yeah. They were comfortable. They didn't vilify the person across the table. You don't actually have to love everyone. I, I, I don't think our system is built on the notion that all groups will join hands and say, you know, it's a small world after all. Yep. No, we're a pluralist system that has conflict built into it. But the point is it has to be productive conflict on terms of humanity that recognize the legitimacy of the other side. Yeah. And what we're doing today, you said this so well, is we're in a situation which is even different from a few years ago where you demonize the other side, where it's all or nothing and to work with, to talk about the other side, to, to grant that they might have an argument, even yeah. if you agree on your side, is somehow treasonous. No. Um, you learn to empathize. You learn to be able to at least see the world through someone else's eyes when you're living with them, working with them, doing things together, especially when you're working for the public interest together because then you have to think about both sides being part of that public. Yeah. And I think that's the crucial word, word here. A capitalist, liberal, democratic society needs investment in the public. There's nothing undemocratic or uncapitalist about that. We need the public. We have underinvested in the public as an idea and as a resource. Yeah. It, it is, I, I think you're right. And if I'm understanding your perspective on this, that it, it, you, it basically allows you to see the humanity in people, even if you've strongly disagree with them Correct. on some subject, you at least have some understanding of where they're coming from. And there is just a, a greater sense of decency, I think, that comes out of yes. interactions like that. Yes. And, and empathy is probably the most important uh, characteristic that we all need to nurture in ourselves, right? It's what made Franklin Roosevelt a great leader. Mm. He could empathize with people so different. Uh, what does empathy really mean? It's just as you said, it's, it's not just putting yourself in someone else's shoes. It's respecting where they stand. That doesn't mean apologizing. You can still prefer your set of shoes to theirs. Yeah. But you have to respect that what they are doing. You gave a great example. It makes no sense, and it is deeply condescending to say people from Erie, Pennsylvania, 
are dumb or racist. Look, there are plenty of racists in progressive Austin. You yeah. don't have to be from Erie, Pennsylvania. There might be more in Austin than yeah. there are there, right? Yeah. Uh, we have to be able to not just put ourselves in their shoes, understand their socioeconomic factors in your hometown, but also respect those people. And then talk to them in a way that explains why, why I think, at least, that uh, investing in green technology is the way to go for them as well as for us. Yeah. Even though they might not see that today, we have to try to persuade them and at least respect their position. I've been of the view generally that the kind of certainty with which people castigate large swaths of the population when they make statements like the one you just articulated comes from a place of anxiety. That that kind of, uh, you know, thou protest too much or whatever the Shakespeare yeah. line is, they're just overselling the certainty a little bit too much that they're, almost baked into statements like that in my mind psychologically is a recognition that you may not fully know what you're talking about and that you have lost something deeply important in human nature or in, in your perspective on the world, which is like, you don't know these people. Right. And I bet if you did, you would probably still hold the position you do now, but you would at least, I, I doubt you would speak the same way afterwards. Uh, once you had a, a long interaction with someone from a place that like I was I, just mentioning, I agree. I mean, <sighs> The historian in me says that, as I think across the range of many figures I've studied closely, the more certain ones are almost always the worst leaders. Hmm. Uh, because certainty is in some ways a a protection of ignorance, hmm. not a curiosity. You know, the curious person knows what they know and knows there's so much more they don't know Yeah, and wants to learn. Uh, I think one of the most interesting things is to look at how someone, especially in a powerful position, political, business, whatever it is, how they start a conversation. Do they start by telling you what they think <laughs> or by asking who you are and where you come from, hmm. right? Uh, podcasts are interesting on this too, right? I ask my students all the time, you know, what do they listen to? And most of them want to listen to things in areas where they don't know. Yep. Very few want to listen to a sermon and students have the right insight. Uh, on that. They want to understand a problem, see it from a different point of view. And I think one has to be willing to do that. It, it never makes sense to offer categorical judgments that write people out mm. because all you do then is create adversaries yep. and you give them a reason not, not to like you. Now, all of that said, we still also have to face facts that exist, right? And I don't think large population groups should ever be called racist or anything like that. But I do think we have to recognize that our system, and this is how I like to talk about it, encourages certain behaviors in people. So I don't think, uh, just to take one recent example, I don't think that the evidence of large and frequent um, violence towards African Americans by police officers, I don't think that in any way means that police officers are racist. They're probably no more racist than the general population. Mm -hmm. But I do think as a historian that there's a system of policing that encourages uh, low information uses of violence towards certain groups. Mm. And that's not even the fault of the police officers, that's what the system is reinforcing. My guess is, I don't understand Erie as well as you did, but yeah. if we talked about it long enough, there were probably systems in place that encourage certain attitudes. Yeah. Those could be changed, but they probably encourage certain attitudes toward people who might be viewed as socialist or might be viewed as environmentalist. Yeah. Uh, and that's how we should talk about it. What is the system doing to encourage human beings to think in certain ways and close off communication and others? Yeah, the power of incentives, right? Absolutely. I mean, you, you can ex if you explain the incentive, you can explain the behavior. 
As we close down, I, I would love... I, I've been thinking throughout this conversation of the book Bowling Alone. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you're from the Rob, Robert, Robert Putnam's, Putnam's book. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, and how, you know, I think one of the general arguments in the book is that those sort of social groups that you were mentioning before that would bring together people of different ethnic backgrounds, different political backgrounds, that was sort of the hallmark of American society have begun to fray, seriously fray, over yes. the last 30 or 40 years. For somebody who's interested in this and is interested in being a bulwark against the the tide of tribalism and disparaging large swaths of the American population against one another. What are, what are a few things or a few ideas, something to think about for those people, for organizations they can join activities that they can implement in their own life that can begin to, to blunt some of those momentous forces. Uh, It's, it's something I, I I'm asked about often and think a lot about and I'll give some preliminary answers, but I, you know, they're preliminary answers. <laughs> I don't have, uh, and I'm eager to learn from others. I'm sure many of your other guests will have great uh, insights on this. It's one of the reasons I listen to podcasts because yeah. this is the kind of topic where I think we all can learn and you don't need to have a PhD yeah. to have really good ideas yeah. here. We kind of know where we want to go, right? We need to, as you say, reweave the fabric that connects the different patterns of our society without overriding those patterns. There still should be different points of view. So here are some of the things that I've thought about, again, from a historian's uh, point of view. We need to think about institutions. What are the places in our society where people are going to come together? And how can we reinvest in those institutions? So schools are obviously one place, mm-hmm. right? Uh, young young kids, especially in early, early age levels before their parents sort them into magnet schools and private schools. Yep. They tend to go to middle schools together, right? Neighborhood schools still matter a lot. Even in cities like Austin, certainly in smaller towns, I'm sure in Erie, um, it's not just money. Let's get more involved in those schools. Let's get more involved in connecting kids and getting these conversations going at a very young age. Oftentimes, you have to work against the parents. Hmm. I mean, I see this at the college level. Parents are well-intentioned, but... but, they're part of the system, right? Yep. And so this is one area where we can work work against that. Um, I think, by the way, uh, a lot of cities have programs of you know summer camps, especially for disadvantaged kids, mm-hmm. that bring kids together with other kinds of kids. I think that's really important. So starting young, right? That's what all the research says, right? You start young, that's the most important time. Second, I think uh, those of us who have the opportunity to talk and once in a while have people listen, <laughs> we need to talk about this. You know, too many people until recently, this is why I'm so optimistic now, until a year or two ago, were saying, you know, I don't want to talk about this stuff. It's too radioactive. Yeah. I have a lot of friends, I'm sure you do too, who are business leaders. Business didn't want to get involved in this. Yeah. George Floyd changed that. Mm. And Donald Trump changed that, right? Now, businesses are not doing this to be woke. They're doing this because they recognize it's important for their long-term sustainability to be able to have customers and employees who can work together, they need to invest in that. Now, we need to speak out. Speak out not for left or right. Speak out against those who divide us. Speak out against those who do just what you said before, right? Categorize people. Speak out against, even if you're on the left, someone who says horrible things about people on the other side in these categorical ways. Speak out against that. Encourage conversation. Uh, we We all need to do that. Um, and I think we need to uh, invest locally. Locally is where we can make a real difference. Uh, in Austin, thanks to my wife's leadership on the city council, they're creating an Austin Civilian Conservation Corps <laughs> to do some of the things that, that the CCC did in the, in the 1930s, where young people can get involved in 
making parks better, planting mm-hmm. trees. Invest in those kinds of local activities. Uh, in Austin, as in anywhere else, you have all kinds of nonprofits uh, that are working on various things, education, neighborhood development, homelessness, all mm-hmm. sorts of issues. Those organizations are not just about the topic. They're also bringing people together. Yeah. Get involved. Bring people in who are uh, from other organizations. And then the last thing I'd say is um, support media through your just through your patronage that encourage exactly these kinds of conversations. Uh, please stop watching and subscribing to sites that send out conspiracies left or right and encourage sites, put your dollars, your pennies mm. into sites that are building these kinds of, of, of conversations. I think it's really, really uh, important to do that. Um, you know, one uh, one thing I've become very, very interested in is the world of podcasts for this reason. Yeah. What I find, and, I, and I'm only a novice in podcasts, I have my own little podcast, and then I, I love listening to, to podcasts like yours and others, is these are spaces for some podcasts where you do have have people coming together and um, usually it's free to listen but sometimes you know you have to put a, put a few pennies in I think put your money into the things you believe in yep I have loved this conversation I really hope we can do this again at some point me in the too. future me and, too um, in closing one final thing I'll say just this this is this dovetails nicely into what you were saying a source of hope honestly for me as well and I have benefited enorm- enormously from consuming this information are the new media podcasting platforms and the capacity of those of those uh conversations to be lengthy nuanced much less difficult to attack it's much less much much more difficult to attack someone who is given an hour or more to state their case and not see the humanity in them than if you see a some splice quote in the new york times or some other publication and uh, i i do view these kind of conversations as um, a, a source of optimism and, and hope for improving the quality of our, our civilization and, and our community here in Austin. So I, I want to thank you for the time. I, I know you're a busy guy and um, you're obviously a brilliant guy. And I, I thank you for the ideas and the time and, and the conversation. It was, it was a pleasure. Well, and Dan, I want to praise what you're doing. You're, you're a model. And I'm not just saying this to blow smoke <laughs> in your face, but you know, um, you're devoting your time uh, and your resources to this because you care about it and you love it too. I do. And, and that's the other secret. Working with people together across differences. I'm sure you and I agree on a lot. I'm sure you and I have different experience. You're from Erie, Pennsylvania. I'm from New York City, yeah. right? I'm a historian. You're someone with a tech background, right? This is so much fun. Yeah. Let's invest in this because it's the right thing to do, but also because we love doing it. You're a model for that, and I I really, I I appreciate getting to know you. Thank you, buddy. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks. Thanks.